It's time to be mindful and take a more bee-centric look inside our hives. Welcome to the Natural Beekeeping Corner with our host, Natalie B. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Natural Beekeeping Corner on the Hive Jive. I am your host, Natalie B. I'm a Texas A&M Master Beekeeper, and I've got about 10 years worth of experience with all kinds of hives, working um, naturally with Les Crowder, the Taba Hive guru who wrote the book, Tabar Beekeeping, Organic Practices for Honeybee Health. So I've got a good mentor, but mostly what I wanted to talk about today was um, integrated pest management and how um, natural approaches are sufficient to keep your bees healthy. So let's kind of, uh, today we're gonna do something a little bit different. We're gonna share some slides. So for those of you who are only listening, those will be available uh, with the video recording on the Patreon. And if you're not a um, member of Patreon, they will be released later in the future. But in the meantime, I'll do my best to make sure that you've got a pretty good idea of what I'm talking about without having to look at the slides. Integrated pest management is a very important part of beekeeping, whether you treat or not. And it's actually a critical part of being successful, keeping your bees naturally. So I wanted to kind of develop that theme today and get into the details. We're gonna do this in several uh, parts. There's so much to talk about. I can't possibly fit it all in one setting. So we're gonna go through the first part of it today, uh, discussing basically the first two levels of integrated pest management, what integrated pest management is and why it's important. We're gonna talk about chemical-free interventions and how they're enough uh, to troubleshoot pests and diseases sustainably in your colonies. So let's uh, first um, be aware of what's being told across the beekeeping world. A lot of people will tell you, if you don't treat your bees, they will die. Uh, that's something that some of the most famous researchers have mentioned before. Uh, a lot of people believe that um, without the assistance of uh, chemical intervention, you cannot keep healthy uh, colonies of bees. Dr. Jamie Ellis mentioned, if you don't treat your bees, they will die. Dr. Megan Milbrath mentioned, if you, your bees don't have to die, meaning you have to treat them, otherwise they will die. And there's a lot of basically um, terrifying um, um, predictions for your bees if you don't use interventions of treatments. And uh, everybody's gonna tell you your bees are gonna die, but the bees, have something else in mind. Um, on the screen, we're looking at my eight-year-old worry hive that I installed and never fed and treated uh, and actually never inspected. Um, worry hives are notorious for being a little bit trickier to inspect and um, the cross combing tends to be attaching, the brace combing tends to be attaching the combs to the side of the, the boxes. So it's a little bit harder. Uh, and for that reason, and the fact that I wanted to have um, proof of concept, I never really intervened in that colony. And it's thriving year after year on its own, uh, well past the three-year mark that people say um, you're going to have issues with your bees. Now, these, to be um, completely honest, were 
not the common uh, commercially treated, you know, Italian bees from out of state. Um, what they wear to start with is they wear good local survivor stock. And that's what's important when you are wanting to keep your bees sustainably um, and, and naturally is to start with good bees. Not all the bees are created equal. And what's really uh, going to increase your chances of success are going to be the local survivor stock. The bees that have been surviving on their own without a you know, treatment intervention and that have um, adapted to the local cycles of weather and forage uh, in your area. So those are gonna be healthier, they're gonna be more resilient. And there's research out there that shows they are gonna be um, having a higher chance of success uh, as opposed to commercially treated bees from out of state that tend to be struggling from the get-go. The decks are stacked against them, if you wish. So over time, um, raising bees without treatments, what it does is that helps you produce hardier bees, bees that are more resilient. And if you treat the bees with chemicals, what it does is the opposite. It, it helps weaker genetics to propagate. And it also allows the strongest of mites to breed even stronger mites. What, what it does is that it's putting the pressure on the mites to become hardier and hardier instead of putting it on the bees. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. So a lot of people talk about the dreaded mite bomb, how when a colony that's been infested with mites will spread um, mite population to neighboring colonies uh, horizontally or vertically. Um, and that's something that's a little bit of a scare tactic to use the word mite bomb, because what really happens is for any one hive that was treated and survived, there's also another one that was treated and didn't survive. So in effect, what you've got is that um, when you've got those mite bombs that are created across the board, in effect, the ones that come from treated colonies will have more virulent um, mites and weaker genetics that are being propagated. So I, you know, I like to uh, mention the opposite being the treated bomb. Um, and that means that you end up with uh, mites that have received that pressure and only the strongest have survived and only the strongest have propagated and mites will evolve um, and, and develop defense mechanisms against those treatments. So do we really want to breed those super mites and do we really want to send those genetics through those drones from treated colonies that are propagating not only the weaker genetics but also contributing the uh, their weaker sperm, some of it not viable, some of it of lesser quality, and their contribution to the queen spermatheca in the area uh, that disproportionately um, makes it so that the queen is poorly mated, basically. The more of those drones, the less um, well-mated your queen is going to be. So we are negatively impacting um, the, the, the beekeeping, the bee colonies in the area uh, when we are propagating treated bees, basically. So to those that says that it cannot be done, um, I say, <laughs> really, we should not interrupt those that are doing it. There's plenty of beekeepers that are keeping their bees naturally, sustainably, without any kind of treatments. So that's totally an option um, that makes for more resilient bees. And um, people like Michael Bush, Les Crowder, Kirk Webster, Dr. John Kiefus, Dr. Leo Sharashkin. There's a lot of people out there that are, you know, the, the bee weavers. 
that are doing it commercially. So you can do it at your backyard scales and some people are even doing it at the commercial scale. So what we're doing is that we're, we're looking towards resistance, which means um, being able to fend off the populations of the pests, in this case, decreasing the amount of mites in the colonies uh, and also tolerance, meaning whatever amount of mites are in your colonies, the, the colonies are thriving and are not negatively impacted by either those mites or the viruses that they transmit. Um, luckily, like I tell people, <laughs> the Bright Brothers never paid attention to all the naysayers and they went on to change the history of mankind. Well, it's kind of the same thing. A lot of people are at the avant-garde of the natural beekeeping, the resistance and tolerance breeding of bees in the local survivor stock. Dr. John Kifus is actually talking about the bond method or the soft bond method, which is uh, the survival of the fittest. And um, that's kind of what we do when we are keeping bees. We, we basically, naturally, we keep the strong and we call the weak. And that's the way forward as far as the um, natural resilience of the bees in the face of the pests. And there's always going to be more pests coming in. So do we want to keep uh, finding more treatments and um, chemicals to put in our colonies uh, when that's eventually going to breed resistance to the, uh, the components, the chemical components? So with all that in mind, let's talk and dive a little bit more into what actually integrated pest management is and uh, what's the definition of it. And it's short for integrated pest management is IPM, integrated pest management. And what is it? Um, IPM is really a pest management strategy that integrates a combination of tactics. That's very important because it's not just one single tactic. It's a combination of, it's a multi-pronged approach to the issues, to, to um, intervening, uh, to reduce the pop populations of the pests and the impact of the pathogens. So we wanna make sure that they don't take a toll, a negative toll on your colonies and doing that as non-intrusively and as effectively as possible. The goal is to do no harm first to the colony and to minimize the impact of the pests and the pathogens they transfer through a combination of past, of tactics. So it's really a whole multi-pronged approach and strategy. Um, there are actually, most of the time people will talk about four levels of integrated pest management controls. We like to discuss the fifth one and the first more, most important one being educational. Level one is educational, being aware of uh, what's a healthy colony and what the pests and pathogens are. The level two is gonna be cultural, uh, meaning what kind of genetics and uh, environmental um, uh, um, pressure you are keeping in, around your hives. Basically, just kind of what kind of stock you're keeping. Physical level is the third level. Um, any kind of mechanical interventions, physical interventions that are going to prevent the pest from entering, for example. Fourth level is going to be your biological intervention. Um, that could be predators of the pests, that could be um, bacillus and, and all kinds of different biological um, actors that can help curb the pressure of the pests and the pathogens. And then the last level, and the one that we try to keep um, at minimum is the chemical 
intervention. So let's break those down real quick. Uh, we're going to go through all those uh, levels one by one. And today we're going to be able to discuss mostly the culture, the educational and then the cultural level. And then we'll keep the rest for uh, next month. But the implication of integrated pest management is are that it's a sustainable um, approach. It's also science-based. This is uh, absolutely not um, unfunded and unresearched. This is very well researched in science-based. And it's uh, basically a decision-making process that helps you um, activate several levels of intervention based on what you're looking at and how your colonies are doing. It is meant to mitigate environmental threats that are brought upon by um, environmental stressors as well as pests and, and diseases. It is meant to prevent before anything else, uh, avoid having the problems from um, getting established. So prevent, identify, and manage risks associated with pests and pathogens. And the goal is to decrease resistance to treatments. That's very important. That's why it's important to not um, prophylactically apply treatments to your colonies without having um, applied some integrated pest management interventions first. So let's talk about the pyramid. Um, a lot of you are aware of the food pyramid. Basically, it's a graphical representation of what we should be um, eating mostly at the base of the pyramid is what is the most important, the most of. And then as you go higher and higher on the levels of the pyramid, you have foods that you should use less and less or eat less and less of as they become more and more um, nutrient deficient and, and uh, potentially harmful, but in moderation, it's, uh, it's acceptable. So that the pyramid is a good representation of what the integrated pest management pyramid is going to be as well. We often represent integrated pest management strategies with a pyramid um, where the lowest levels are the ones that are the most important and we should use less and less um, of the higher levels if we have done the lower levels properly. So one of the reasons is that the top of the pyramid is going to actually take a negative toll on the colonies. Most of it is going to be toxic and it's going to have negative consequences on the colonies that um, might not be the, worth the trade-off um, based on compared to what those uh, interventions are bringing to the colony. So let's talk about that in terms of uh, beekeeping. Again, that pyramid of integrated pest management is going to be represented with those five levels, the lowest levels being the, the base of that pyramid, that education and knowledge. Uh, the second level is going to be a little bit narrower. It's going to be your cultural controls. The third level is going to be the mechanical physical interventions, a little bit narrower still. And even further than that, the biological and uh, chemical intervention with the chemical interventions being all the way at the top of that pyramid. The goal is to really prevent problems rather than intervening after they arise. And that's why we recommend staying at the first few levels of that pyramid. Um, because if we do that right, then the higher levels of the pyramids are no longer needed, especially the chemical intervention. So let's talk 
and dive a little bit more into the bottom level of that pyramid, the one that's one of the most important ones and that we should really focus on to be successful beekeepers. And that's the education and knowledge. What that means is that we need to be able to understand the biology and the life cycle of the colony of honeybees, but also that of pests. And that's the real foundation for being able to disrupt its reproduction and limiting the damage that it can cause to the colony. So understanding that pests and pathogens, knowing what their life cycle is and what their biology is, is gonna really be very important. We need to be very familiar for, with, um, for example, small hive beetles or the, the varomites and their biology and life cycle so that we can really um, leverage that biology and life cycle of the colony um, against them. So it starts with understanding how a healthy colony of honeybees looks and how it behaves uh, normally. It also goes through knowing the main pests and pathogens that can affect your colonies in your area. Not all locations are equal, but for the most part, everybody's got to deal with uh, varomites. A lot of us have to deal with small hive beetles, um, and sometimes ants, other things, right? And we need to really understand their life cycle. And also we need to learn to identify their symptoms. If we're not looking for symptoms, we're never gonna be able to identify them. And knowing those symptoms is gonna allow us to intervene, identify the problems early on before they get too serious and uh, before they become significant and intervene before uh, it gets established. So what does that mean? Um, that means we really, and I cannot uh, emphasize that enough, we really need to understand the life cycles of the bees and the colonies. That's the most important thing. And then uh, again, recognize, to, recognize developing problems early so that we can intervene in a timely fashion before it gets too established. We also need to remember that the complete eradication of most of the pests and pathogens that are uh, plaguing our bees today is rarely possible. Uh, and, and it's not necessarily required as long as the colonies are thriving and their levels are not too high. But um, we also need to keep in mind that their very mere presence can be used to place pressure on the bees to get stronger bees. Uh, for example, Dr. Kifus was offering to buy mites uh, from other beekeepers. I think he was asking for a cent or 10 cents a piece or something like that because he didn't, he, he did bred these bees so well for um, resistance that there were no longer enough mites in his colonies to put the pressure on the bees to develop strategies to fend them off and putting them in such a bubble after a while uh, means that if another kind of mites or a stronger mites comes in, then those bees would not have uh, the opportunity to develop their own defenses against them. So it's very important to keep some level of pressure on your bees um, to get them stronger. Les Crowder is a great example for me. Every time I go into a hive and I see some small hive beetles, my natural tendency is to go in and, and smoosh them, crash them. And he's like, no, that's the job of the bees. They need to, they need to take care of business. And, and if we don't let them um, develop the strategies they need to 
uh, take care of those on their own, then we're doing them a disservice. So that's something to keep in mind. I think that's very wise. The other thing that we need to realize is that there are a lot of symbiotic micro microbial and yeast relationships within the colony and even in the individual bee guts. And those medication and environmental pesticides that we pour into the colonies for the sake of eradication or decrease of the pest and pathogen populations, um, that's something that needs to be uh, taken into account because we can very well be disrupting those symbi symbiotic uh, relationships and harming the colony of bees. Just like, you know, I don't like comparing human beings or mammals to, to colonies of insects that have nothing to do and they function completely differently. But a, a, a basic analogy would be when you get uh, antibiotics, you're sick and you get a regimen and antibiotics, it really destroys your gut uh, microbiome. And that's why very often you're recommended to take probiotics or, or yogurt afterwards to reestablish that because that really is taking a toll on, on your gut. Uh, and that can have a negative effect on your immune system. So there's a trade-off uh, to all those interventions that we need to be very careful of. This is a, a little diagram that talks about the life cycle of the bees from the time the queens are laying an egg in the cell and how long it takes for them to develop and what the jobs are that they do after they get out their cells. It talks about basically temporal polyethism, which is a, a fancy way to describe age-related uh, labor division for the bees meaning depending on the age of the, the bees, they start by cleaning cells and then they develop hypopharyngeal glands, which is basically where they're generating the bee milk uh, and feed the larvae and the, and the queens. Um, and then there's the ones that are, um, those are the nurse bees, but there's also the ones that are um, developing later in life, their wax glands and making the wax for capping cells or building comb or repairing things. They're the ones that are going to um, do the undertaking and the cleaning of the colony uh, by taking out the dead bodies and the sick bees out of the cells. They're the ones that are uh, guarding the entrance um, before they turn into foraging for food, pollen, nectar, water, and also medicinal um, um, compounds like propolis. And there's also the, the ones that are inside the hive receiving the, the nectar. There's all kinds of works uh, that the bees do. It's very important to know the life cycles of those bees, when that happens, what that means for the colonies, and also the length of development from each of the casts of bees. So that's the life cycle of the bees. But beyond the life cycle of the bees, we also need to understand the life cycle of the superorganism, the colony as a whole, and what it does um, throughout the seasons. So seasons are usually yearly and, and they go through periods of expansion and when the nectar and the pollen come in in the spring flow and then they potentially can swarm and they reach a peak. And, and after the um, dearth comes in, they start contracting back down. And that kind of repeats um, every year following the cycles of nectar and pollen. So it's important to know the life cycle of the colony in your specific area because it varies based on the seasons where you are and your micro local conditions. 
Um, you need to be aware, for example, that at the beginning of the season, there's very few bees. Uh, the winter bees were taking care of the, the nest throughout the winter and making sure the queen survived. And they're the ones that are going to start building up the colony in the spring, um, where the numbers are going to start increasing. And you're going to start seeing some eggs and some young brood. Uh, with the appearance of the nectar and the pollen. And then that population is going to start expanding and growing and the bees are going to start multiplying with numbers going up and the activity is going to increase. Um, the resources are going to be higher and um, that's going to come to a point in the later uh, spring to early summer usually where your colony is going to potentially, if it's healthy and has found enough food, going to run out of place, out of space. There's going to be a large um, congestion, a uh, huge number of bees. You're going to start seeing backfilling of the brood's nest after the latest slabs of worker broods have emerged. You will see uh, capped drone brood. And pretty soon, as soon as those bees um, emerge and start getting to work, they're going to go and leverage the um, food resources and start backfilling it because they're going to bring food faster than they can clear space or make space for them by building home. And at that point, you're going to end up with swarming conditions and you're going to start seeing queen cells and the colony is probably going to start swarming at that point. And once that happens, or if uh, this, the nectar flow and the pollen flow start decreasing during the dearth, those populations are going to start to contract and the number of bees are going to decrease. And um, they're going to raise a, a last batch of bees to sustain the winter, which are going to be, uh, in effect, a fourth cast of bees uh, called the winter bees, or the technical term is diatinous bees. They're the, just the fat bees that are got a lot of fat bodies that are going to sustain the, the colony during the winter. They're going to store some of that food in their combs and in their um, honey stores and, and bee bread stores. But some of that protein and fat is going to get stored within the body of those bees so that they can um, generate food uh, using that. And also um, um, it's insulating, <laughs> let's be honest, fat is insulating as well. So that's going to help them get through the winter. So you're going to see that population decrease back down to uh, lower levels and they're going to overwinter that way. So the cycle repeats every year and it's a very important cycle to understand as much as the life cycle of the bees themselves because that's going to impact how you can um, understand the life cycle of the pests and pathogens and how to best um, interrupt them. The one thing that we need to be uh, understanding though is that we need to be mindful of the unintended consequences of uh, intervening and disrupting those cycles. Every time we um, disrupt the bees' life cycles or the colony's life cycle, there's potential for an issue. So we need to really be mindful of that, understanding those very deeply and very um, well is gonna help us minimizing those unintended consequences. For that reason, we really, really recommend educating yourself on the biology of the honeybee, as well as the honeybee diseases and pests. And on the screen, you can see two books that we highly, highly recommend. The first one being Mark Winston's The Biology of the Honeybee. 
Uh, it's a very good book that really describes the biology of the colony and the single bees, uh, as well as their mating, their reproduction, uh, in a lot of details. It's, it's very dense, but it's very important to understand what this book uh, describes because it's going to help you really understand the, the biology of the colony. The other reason why I really like this book is because it's written in, from the perspective of a um, biologist, a researcher that's not a beekeeper per se. It's not looking at what you can do as a beekeeper to intervene. It's really a, look, a candid look into the actual life of the colony and the bees. So it, it's unbiased. It's not looking at increasing production. It's not looking at uh, splitting or leveraging swarming or anything like that. It's just an observation book. And as such, it's, it's absolutely uh, amazing source of information for biology of the honeybee. The second book is a Canadian Association of Professional Apiculturists publication called The Honeybee Diseases and Pests. It's a purple book with a, a bee on it. And it's an amazing book because it's a very well uh, synthesized and yet precise uh, description of the main uh, diseases and pests of the honeybees. And it also provides some level of information as to how you can intervene and how you can help your colonies with strategies described in this book. Uh, and what I really like is that it doesn't always go to um, treatments as the first source of uh, intervention, which prophylactically treating our colonies of bees is not the solution. It's not a silver bullet. It has an, uh, unintended consequences that can take a, a really uh, serious toll on our colonies. Um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. So having the good understanding of those cycles and some interventions that can be taken is um, really important to be a good beekeeper and to increase your chances of success, especially if you're going to be uh, wanting to keep your bees naturally and sustainably, but it's true for every beekeeper. This is um, a little bit of a visual representation of those life cycles, uh, of those uh, cycles of forage and uh, dearth and expansion and contraction in Texas specifically, where we have a very uh, um, different kind of pattern. We're looking at that uh, expansion in the spring and contraction during the summer dearth. But in the fall, we have a secondary uh, expansion and contraction with a fall flow. So we have two main flows, the main um, spring flow, which is usually more intense and uh, a bit shorter. And then the fall flow is going to be uh, less intense, usually, depending on the areas, and then a little bit uh, longer. It's more chronic than the first one. The first one is more explosive, more acute. So we've got uh, those cycles that repeat from year to year with that expansion, contraction through the summer dearth, and then another cycle of expansion and contraction, but smaller. And those double cycles kind of repeat every year. So understanding those um, nectar and pollen flows and associated expansions and contractions in your local area are very important. And I encourage you to uh, draw those for the months uh, that they are unfolding in your area, observing what's coming to bloom, how much nectar and pollen is coming into your hives month to month, uh, and that's going to help you understand uh, what kind of cycles your colonies are going through 
and understand what's happening and how you can help your bees if there's any problems that arise. So the level one implications of education and knowledge is being able to identify and understand what's happening in your colonies when you crack them open. Uh, identification, basically looking at the resources in your hives, pollen and bee bread, but also the brood and more specifically the population and the patterns of your brood. If you've got, um, there's two pictures on this slide. There's a picture on the left that's a slab of capped brood, but very few uh, empty cells. And then there's a, another picture on the right side that's um, a slab of um, basically spotty brood pattern with a lot of open cells and it's irregular. It's not a slab, a continuous slab of capped brood. So very often we'll look at a, a continuous, very you know, uniform um, slab of capped brood as a sign of a healthy colony. And uh, that's something that's always a good sign to look at in a colony. But when we start looking at a spotty brood pattern, that could be a sign of a failure to thrive. It could also be a sign of pests and pathogens and their, their levels in the colony. But the other thing that we need to understand is that even if we know how to read those combs, um, we need to be able to interpret them based on the life cycle and symptoms of the pests and pathogens and our understanding of the uh, colony life cycles. And what I mean by that is that in theory, a, a nice picture on the left of a slab of uniform capped brood is a, is a great sign to look at. And in theory, the one on the right is a sign of a problem potentially of pests, but it's not as simple as that. So understanding that with uh, the onset of a nectar flow and sometimes the, um, the end of a nectar flow, you can end up with um, capped cells with a lot of um, uh, spotty brood pattern that could be a sign of uh, stress initially when the nectar flow hasn't started. Uh, that could also be a sign when the nectar flow is going on and, and strong, either at the beginning or at the end. It could be a sign of backfilling of the brood's nest with resources such as nectar and potentially bee bread, which is going to create a spotty brood pattern for a while temporarily. So it's important to kind of like take into consideration everything that's happening in the environment. The other sign that it could be uh, of would be of a poorly mated queen. She could be um, poorly mated and some of her, um, she could have uh, inbreeding and um, laying more diploid drones, meaning drones that are not viable, that the bees are gonna start removing, creating a spotty brood pattern, or she could be laying duds. She's poorly mated, so she's running out of sperm. Um, that could mean that you have some drone brood in the middle of your worker brood, and it's just kind of looking haphazard. It is not always, a sign of pest and pathogen. It could be and often is a problem with either the queen or the environmental resources coming into the hives. So there's something to keep in mind. Let's not oversimplify and throw everything at the mites because then we're doing ourselves a disservice and we're not understanding the colony and how it works. So understanding that in itself is gonna make you a better beekeeper. It, you're gonna be more in tune with your colonies and understand better what's happening 
uh, for the bees. So let's dive a little bit more into the varamites. This is an, an example of the knowledge that you need to gather and you need to be very well aware of the life cycles of those mites because they are the number two reason why your colonies have issues usually. The number one being poor queens um, and the second one being the mites in their pressure. So at the top left, we're looking at a um, frame of spotty bird pattern, but that also looks off. It has a lot of um, um, almost like um, white pupae or white larvae that are looking like they're either chewed or something's going on, maybe some discoloration. Uh, the low population also is a sign and it doesn't look like it's because of resources uh, so that's a potential sign for a varamite infestation. The other thing that we need to recognize is when we see a bee that has deformed wing, they're all shriveled up and you know they're never, she's never going to be able to fly and contribute to the uh, intake of pollen and, and um, nectar for the colony. That's a sign usually there might be an issue. Deformed wing virus is a virus that's present in all the colonies most of the time it's at a latent stage, meaning it's not expressed. And uh, sometimes stress and especially stress caused by varamites um, uh, can increase the expression of that virus and uh, make it difficult for the colony. So when you see one different ring virus, it's not the end of the world, but if you start seeing a lot of those on your uh, frames, then that's definitely a sign that there's an issue and probably linked to varamite infestations. Of course, if you do see mites on the back of the bees, um, that's an issue. You're going to see more mites, however, during the periods of uh, contractions when there's not as much brood coming through because the life cycle of the mites, if you look at the top right of the image, the queen lays an egg, um, the larvae develops, uh, the nurse bees that are carrying some of those mites are feeding those larvae. Uh, when they're ready to pupate, the foundress mite, the mama mite, uh, just dives into the cell with the larvae and gets capped with it. And she starts reproducing in there, laying first a male mite and then uh, female mites at the rate of about every 30 hours and the male mite is gonna, all the mites are gonna feed on the pupae, but they also are gonna reproduce in the cell. The male mites gonna mate with all the daughter mites. And uh, if they are, uh, they've given enough time, they will reach maturity and be viable coming out of the cells. Uh, with the mite, emer uh, with the uh, bee emerging, the adult bee emerging. And so the mother mite comes out and uh, however many matured um, daughter mites are ready to emerge will come out and be viable. The rest, the, the male mites and the daughter mites that are immature uh, will not make it. So that length of development for the uh, bee is going to have a role in the intervention that we can take, but more on that later. So the... Uh, other things that you can see mites on usually is when you uncap some brood and they prefer drone brood to worker brood. So that's also something we need to keep in mind. You'll see more in the drone brood uh, and they will go and infest worker broods only when they don't have uh, drone brood available or their population becomes too high. 
So the other thing that we need to keep in mind is that that population of bees going through a period of expansion, a peak, and then a period of de de um, contraction is going to be followed by a similar expansion and a peak and decrease in the mite population, but offset. And what happens is that the colony is going to be fine for the amount of time that the ratio of uh, mite to bees is low, meaning there's more bees to mites. And then once that ratio increases where you have more mites to bees, that becomes very damaging to the colony. And that's when usually um, colonies will crash. And that happens very often in the fall as the population of bees decreases and when the population of mites um, peaks. The other thing to keep in mind with this is that the measurements that the, the counts, the mite counts that we can make are from nurse bees and from adult bees that um, are carrying mites on their backs. You cannot measure what's under the capping, right? So when there's no brood into the hive, those mite populations are gonna be higher. You're gonna count more mites. And then when there's brood in the hive, a lot of those mites are gonna be under the capping. So being aware of that difference also helps you assess better the levels of population of your mites uh, in your colonies. So that's something to keep in mind. What it also tells you is that when there's uh, no brood in the colony or very little brood in the colony, those mites cannot reproduce. They're in the foretic, the um, piggybacking stage of their life cycle. And they can only you know, last for so long, they really need to reproduce to increase their population. So when you have those periods of dearth in the summer or in the winter, their numbers are not gonna increase if there's no brood in the colony. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, there's research out there that when we feed our colonies for increase of population, we push our bees to be broody all the time instead of being uh, allowing them to take um, brood break in the summer or in the winter, we just want to keep them um, with brood all the time so that they have more bees so that they can collect more honey for ourselves. What we're doing is we're introducing uh, more opportunities for the mites to reproduce for longer periods of times. And research shows that that difference can go from eightfold uh, to, I think it's like, or eight or 12 fold in a normal evolution when the colony is allowed to take uh, bird breaks following the, level, the cycles of forage and nectar. And if we do keep them fed so that they cannot take a brood break, that goes from 12 fold, fold to 200 fold. I think if, if it's not 800 fold, I think it's 12 fold and 800 fold. Anyway, Bottom line is that when you keep your bees in brood and you feed them for that purpose, you're also breeding mites. So that's something to keep in mind. It's, it's, a, it's got an intended consequences. Everything we do when we intervene and disrupt the natural cycles of the colonies has unintended consequences. And that could be a potentially an increase in viral mite populations in your colonies. So what are some of the visual signs of that infestation? We talked about a little bit of um, some of that, but here, when we've got a lot of signs of varomite infestations, 
um, adding up uh, in a colony, you're going to start seeing a lot of different things that are going to train your eye. And, and without even seeing mites necessarily, you're going to be able to see that you have a, a mite problem. And that's called parasitic mite syndrome. So on the picture that we have here is a, a frame of brood with some capped brood, some open cells, some larvae, some bees. And uh, what we're looking at initially, first glance, it looks okay. But then if we look a little bit deeper, we see discolored uh, larvae, we see chewed up larvae, we see uncapped pupae, we see um, a lot of things that don't look as normal uh, as they would be. And then the other thing we start looking at is a couple of uh, deformed wing virus bees. Um, so the combination of those signs is making it look like there's an issue with mites and that's probably what's going on. Uh, it just happened that we have the queen on that picture as well. What is not showing on this picture is uh, mites on the back of the bees. The mites are actually usually on the belly of the bees when they are phoretic, when they're not under the cappings. So it's harder to see them. When you start seeing mites on the back of the bees, one here and there is not going to be the end of the world. But if you start seeing a lot of them, then your population of mite is probably pretty high. Uh, combine that with the signs of stress that the parasitic mite syndrome is, and then you've got um, uh, probably a problem with your mite populations and the fitness of that colony to deal with it. Because what's important to remember is that some colonies will deal with a high level of mites and not be negatively impacted. Uh, they'll be thriving, they'll be fit, they'll be strong but some of them uh, will not fare so well and will show obvious signs of issues like parasitic mite syndrome. So it all depends on the level of fitness of your colonies, but also if there's other issues associated weakening your colonies and the mites become uh, something they can no longer fend off uh, and deal with. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Let's talk now about another issue that our bees can encounter. Uh, I am not discussing American fall brood in this um, presentation because I think that it, this is a rare occurrence these days in North America. So we're not gonna really dive in American fall brood. What we're gonna look at is European fall brood, which is much more common. And on the left, there's a picture of signs of European fall brood. Basically, there's a bunch of capped brood, but a lot of open cells, a lot of discolored yellowish uh, larvae. So you can see the, the brachia, the, 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 the lines on the larvae very much. You can see some of them are looking a little melty, brownish, almost in colors. And uh, what's important is that those are mostly uncapped brood, right? So that's a big difference between European fowl brood and American fowl brood is that European fowl brood is gonna basically kill the larvae. American fowl brood is gonna allow the larvae to get to um, pupation and capping and they will die under the capping. So the signs are different, um, but this is basically signs of European fowl brood. And what is important to know is that Amongst other things, European fowl brood is a stress-related issue, and it's often related to basically an imbalance of nurse bees to brood uh, ratio. What happens in the in the spring when your colony and your winter bees are starting to rear the brood for the nectar flow? There's an explosion. The queen starts laying like crazy, two thousand eggs a day, up to two thousand eggs a day, uh, sometimes maybe even more, but usually. 
2000 is like the top end of that range. And you've got an explosion in population of larvae and, and young bees that the nurses need to feed. And so where before there was enough nurse bees, now all of a sudden there's fewer, the, the ratio of nurse bees to larvae starts decreasing. There, there's too many larvae for the population of nurse bees. And so the, the larvae starts, they can't keep up basically. And the larvae starts being malnourished and starts being stressed and it starts being sick and it starts dying. So really it's, it's this imbalance that's causing the issue. And it usually gets flushed out with a nectar flow or you know, if you wanna to try to help them clear it out, you can feed them sugar syrup the, in, in, the increase in nutrition is going to help your nurse bees making sure that those larvae are well fed and that hopefully will flush that out for you. Uh, and then as soon as the first uh, capped uh, bees are coming out, you're going to have an influx of nurse bees and that ratio is going to balance itself out. And now you're going to see that European fowl brood usually disappear after uh, a couple of weeks of the nectar flow and or um, if you feed them. And so that's something to keep in mind. So another way to kind of intervene outside of helping them with some sugar syrup feeding and nutrition is to add nurse bees from another population, which is maybe gonna be hard to do unless you have larger colonies because you don't wanna take the nurse bees from another colonies and basically have them struggle with their levels of uh, larvae. So just keep that in mind, unless you have a very large colony that's ahead of the curve that has a lot of nurse bees and not so much uh, larvae, then you can just donate some of those nurse bees and reestablish that ratio of nurse bees to larvae. The other thing you could do is condense that colony into a nuke. Every time you reduce and compress a colony into smaller quarters, and just basically increase the ratio of bees to comb, you're gonna see an improvement of a lot of issues. So that's a technique that's um, not often talked about. That's very important. When you see a, a colony struggling with European fowl brood, put it in a little tiny box and just combine all the bees, even if they're overflowing, that's okay. Very often that helps them uh, take care of the problem on their own. Uh, and then another thing is that a recurring issue or it doesn't uh, clear itself, another possible intervention would be, but it's quite extreme, a requeening with a fresh queen that's going to be much more um, able to, to um, clear out that European fowl brood. So that's one of the recommended interventions anyway, through the integrated pest management. That was European fowl brood. Uh, let's talk about our third example. Uh, we're not going to go through all pests and pathogens, but I want to kind of um, show you how understanding the life cycles of those pests and pathogens in relationship to that of the colony can help you think through and intervene without having to rely on anything like treatments or chemical interventions. So you can do that naturally and sustainably. So small hive beetles, there's a picture on the left of the adults on the comb with, next to some bees. When, when you start seeing... When you see one or two, maybe 20 um, small hive beetles hiding in the corner of a hive, when you crack the lid open, it's not the end of the world, especially if the colony is, is of normal size. If you start seeing a lot of them on the comb and a lot more uh, small hive beetles to bee ratio, then you can start uh, worrying about it. Like 
20, anything about 20, 30 in a regular size colony. And I'm starting to, to uh, think there's an issue. But if you have just, you know, two, three, five, ten, I wouldn't worry about it. Um, they look like little grubby worms that are um, kind of ribbed and have uh, little spikes on the back. We can't really see them, but their their head is orange. And they start very small, but then they end up growing to basically a sixteenth of an inch. And um, they, well, I'm sorry, <laughs> to about um, a half an inch uh, in, in length altogether. That's, that was the scale, the one sixteenth. And then when they get really bad, they can slime up the resources. The honey uh, will ferment and, and leak out of the cells and just kind of make a mess so much so that the colony might actually end up leaving altogether because the conditions in the colony are becoming uh, unsanitary and they can no longer use the, that food anyway. So why not pick up and go? Uh, but you'll see all those wriggly worms into the nectar and the, and the bee bread and, and just kind of messing up the whole thing. They don't get too big, but they can make uh, um, they can make trouble for the colony in higher numbers. So what that means is that we need to know how to stop them before they become that big of a problem. Again, prevention rather than an intervention. The life cycle of the small hive beetle is that they will take advantage of unprotected entrances to slide into the hive. And then uh, if a lot of them are present, they will, they will reproduce more efficiently. But in a Langstroth hive they, or in any hive, they will look for cracks and crevices and hiding places so they can stay and wait for their opportunity to go lay their eggs in um, cells of either honey or pollen, bee bread, or even in brood, because what they're looking for is protein. And if that comb is unprotected and the colony is weak and the ratio of uh, small hive beetle is too high, then those will successful, those eggs will successfully hatch and those uh, small hive beetle larvae will emerge and uh, basically destroy resources. Once they're ready and they've grown um, to their maximum size, they will get ready to leave the colony entirely through the front door again and um, crawl to the ground where they will pupate. And um, they will pupate for about three to six weeks until they're ready to come out of the ground as a full adult. So understanding this life cycle allows you to identify several ways you can intervene. One First method of intervention is to prevent entry of the small hive beetle in your colony to start with by making sure you're, you're got smaller entrances that are well guarded. If you've got a Langstroth hive, for example, and you're not using an entrance reducer, it's really hard for the bees to guard an entrance across the board. Right, so it makes it very easy for the small hive beetles to get into the hive. If you're using a screen bottom board on your colonies, then the smaller adults can crawl through the one eighth of an inch screen. And so that makes it a door open to those um, critters to get into the hive. It makes it much harder for the bees to prevent them from ac getting access to the inside of the colony. So that's why we recommend solid bottom boards amongst other reasons, because uh, screen bottom boards also make it very difficult for 
uh, bees to maintain their their temperatures and humidities and other all other reasons. But in this case, that's what we recommend against them. Uh, the other thing is in that step number two, where they're finding places to hide, you can make it difficult for them to find places to hide. Langstroth are very notorious for having a lot of areas and, and, and places where the small hive beetles can hide, including the, the inner cover and in the between the frames and in the frame um, ledges, resting places. And when you're using, a, for example, a taba hive, a horizontal taba hive, those bars are all going to touch. It's going to be a trough and there's gonna be nowhere for them to hide. So that makes it a lot more difficult for them to find hiding places in a regular sized colony that's able to protect its comb. Um, the other thing is that make sure that you have enough bees in your colony or that your resources at the very least, the pollen, the bee bread, uh, the nectar are, are not um, unprotected. Uh, because if they are unprotected for extended periods of time, those small hive beetles will lay their eggs and um, those will hatch and destroy the resources. So make sure there's not uh, too many unprotected resources and, and keep your colonies strong and uh, a good population to help them fend off those pests. The other thing, uh, the last step of the life cycle of the small hive beetles, when they go into the ground to pupate, so they are particularly fond of uh, soft soil that's moist and that makes a perfect breeding ground. So if you've got um, colonies that are on really dry, hard ground, or that has finely, you know, you can use things like finely crushed limestone or uh, livestock salt or, you know, ex uh, extended rubber membrane, like an old carpet or something that's going to prevent them to make it to the ground, that mechanical barrier in this case, um, that's going to decrease their chances of uh, um, infestation. The That's part of why we usually recommend um, hives be set up in uh, sunny to afternoon shade areas. However, I would say that this full sun, especially these days when we have such hot summers, um, are is much more stressful than what could happen with the small hive beetles in most cases. So I recommend actually putting them in the shade or at the very least in afternoon shade, but just making sure that the ground under the hives is not uh, dark, you know, soft, moist soil, hummus, leaves, you know, compost or anything like that. Just kind of keep it dry underneath and minimize the entry and all and use the other interventions that you have against the small hive beetles. So this was another example of how understanding the life cycle and the symptoms of uh, a pest can help you intervene before it becomes a problem, before it becomes established. Uh, the other thing you can do is use mechanical traps. And we're going to talk about that in the second, uh, in the third level. But um, for now, let's talk about level two of the integrated pest management pyramid. So we talked about education and knowledge, understanding life cycles uh, and symptoms of um, what's happening in your hive so that you can identify when intervention is needed. But the other thing that can help your colonies and that should be uh, something that all beekeepers do is implementing cultural controls. So what do cultural controls mean? 
First and foremost, it means using good queens. That's what's going to make or break your colony, really, is what kind of queens you're using. Um, and, and that means using basically uh, resilient stock, stock that's local uh, and survivor stock, meaning that it's untreated and, and does well on its own. It's going to show tolerance and resistance. And um, that means not importing bees from queens from other states or Hawaii, if you're in Texas or, um, and just, you know, commercial treated bees, Italian from Georgia are probably gonna be uh, the most susceptible to issues uh, if you're gonna wanna keep your bees naturally and sustainably. So just kind of stack the deck in your favor from that. Survivor means that they are able to overwinter on their own and, and to thrive on their own without any kind of um, um, treatment interventions. Local, again, we talked about it, they're gonna be better adapted to your local cycles of weather and forage. That's gonna be important. But good queens are not just local survivor stock. You also wanna make sure that they are well-mated, well-fed and well-established. So let's break this down in a, for a second. Um, and, and actually, before we get there, let's talk about hybrid vigor. You want to make sure that your queens are not inbred. So if you're doing any kind of queen rearing or if you're buying your queens from breeders, you just want to make sure that they are very uh, well um, diverse in their genetics. You don't want to have them being inbred because of what we talked about earlier uh, that's going to create your, your spooty brood pattern. That's going to create a colony that's not really fit. You want to leverage hybrid vigor is what we call. So um, you want to make sure that, you know, they're, they're going to be um, not inbred <laughs> is basically the bottom line. The well-fed, well-mated, well-established queens. Let's talk about that. Um, queen uh, Colonies go through reproduction in the in the peak of the nectar flow, usually when the conditions are right, they're going to cast swarms. And swarm cells are going to be queens that were well-fed. Swarm cells and supersedure cells are queen cells that the, the bees decided and prepared for. They are always well-fed. That doesn't happen if they don't have the resources needed. Uh, they're going to have the most amount of royal jelly. They're going to be the fattest queens. They're going to be more able because they were well-fed to go out and mate better and return with a higher uh, chance of success. So well-fed is super imp important because it's also going to dictate how well-mated they are. Um, if you're using queens that were grafted, those will not have uh, been fed royal jelly from the time they uh, hatched from their eggs. They will have been fed worker jelly for the first maybe 24 hours of their life, which is a huge portion. It's 20% of their portion as a larvae. So they will not be as good quality as the queens from swarm cells and or supersedure cells in some instances. So that's something to keep in mind. Do you want uh, grafted queens or do you want natural swarm cells? Um, I know which ones I want. The uh, well-fed is also going to be um, 
important for their fecundity later in life and for the longevity and how well they're laying their eggs, right? So that's something to keep in mind as well. You want to make sure that they're not emergency cells, uh, which arguably the grafted queens and um, emergency cells are kind of not going to be as well fed. You also want to keep strong colonies um, meaning populous with lots of food, lots of brood uh, that are uh, during the, the periods of expansions anyway, that are able to um, tackle all the environmental pressures. Basically, like you when you have a, a large aquarium, it's going to be more balanced and it's going to be more stable than a smaller aquarium. Well, it's the same thing with a strong colony. It's going to be better uh, fit to tackle issues including dearth and, and environmental stressors uh, of any kind, then a smaller colony will be. They're gonna be flying by the seat of their pants. So that's something to, very important is to try as much as possible to keep strong colonies. That's also why colonies in their first years have so much, uh, struggled so much to get established until their second or third year, because they're not as strong and uh, they're more susceptible to failing uh, because of issues around them. You also want to allow them for brood breaks. So whether you split or you allow them to swarm in, in, and just kind of collect those swarms artificially uh, before the cast, whatever you do, if you prevent them from uh, having brood breaks, we talked about this, you're basically uh, preventing them from taking a break from mite reproduction or other pests and pathogens that that could be the issue. It's a rigid allowing a brood break is a rejuvenating cycle. It's a cleansing cycle that the colonies actually rely upon to stay healthy. So if we eliminate their option to take brood breaks when they want to, when they're following the cycles of weather and forage and contracting during periods of dearth, then we're doing them a disservice. So really, when you're a uh, cultural control, you want to allow them brood breaks as one of the interventions that you can help your bees with. We talk about also old comb and culling and rotation in this level. Uh, that means if you've got really uh, dark comb, you want to start helping the bees cycling it out of the colony, out of the bruise nest especially. You want to keep that nursery clean and healthy and what you do is as you, your bees emerge, you start pushing the, the, you know, the oldest combs out of the bird's nest towards the periphery of the nest, towards the edges of your hive so that you can harvest it and, and eliminate it out of the colony, letting the bees use fresher comb to, especially for their bird's nest to make sure that they stay healthy. That's gonna decrease the levels of viruses and diseases in your colony and it's gonna keep them fresh and healthy. So that's something to keep in mind. The, the rotation cycle is usually about every three, four years, or if you've got natural comb and you look at it through, um, you look at the sun through it and you cannot see the sun through it, then that's too old. You need to start cycling it out and harvesting honey out of it. Um, it's of course hard to do when you've got foundation to look through it, that's gonna skew that. Um, that's for the old conculling. The next intervention at this cultural control level would be to use natural comb and natural cell size. And we're going to talk about that in, in a minute uh, because that's going to help them uh, be healthier, be stronger, and fend off the problems better. 
we want to also minimize stress, meaning interventions, inspections that are too long or too deep or too frequent is gonna bring in too much stress. So we want to not go play with our bird's nest all the time. If you want to, you know, harvest honey or, and do things like that, that's okay. But as much as possible, unless you're doing something specific, you wanna stay out of that bird's nest. Um, you can look at the edges of the bird's nest to see if they're queen right, if there's eggs and larvae, if they're well-fed, if, if there's signs of brood, uh, bird disease or anything like that. But if you can minimize that and, and just kind of close it back as soon as you can after that. That's also why we like to recommend horizontal um, beekeeping because you can better go in the back of the hive, um, move away the resources, bars or frames and um, reach the edge of the outer edge of your brood's nest and just kind of look at that and then close everything back. You haven't disrupted the sanctity of that brood's nest. You haven't disrupted the bees. You haven't set them back as much and, and it's just healthier for them. One of the biggest reasons of stress is when we crack the colony open and we crack those brood's nests and we expose all the frames to the element, we prevent them from um keeping that sanctity we've got uh, the bees keep a specific level of temperature and humidity in their brood's nests and also they keep vapors uh, volatile compounds of propolis that are basically disinfectants for the babies for the brood's nest and whenever we crack those lids open we really expose everything and we let all those vapors get out we um, disrupt the temperatures and the levels of humidity. So it's really hard on a colony when we do that. And that's why uh, a Langstroth is a lot bit more stressful on the colony than horizontal beekeeping when you don't have to disrupt that nest and the roof stays over the nest. The, those levels of humidities and temperatures and volatile compounds are all staying around the nest. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, but minimizing stress is that also if you've got colonies that are starving, you might consider giving them some sugar syrup. And we're not going to talk about um, providing pollen supplements. First of all, it's not pollen. Uh, it's only beneficial if you've got no pollen whatsoever, natural pollen available, because if there's any level of natural pollen available, then they're not, that's not going to make a difference. Uh, and it also can have negative consequences like toxicity, like um, reduction in longevity of the bees, um, exhaustion of the colony in the spring where they're actually not doing well because they've been overfed in the fall, increase of uh, pests and pathogens, especially those mites, because we keep them broody all the time. There's all kinds of reasons why we don't recommend pollen supplements um, and the fact that it's not pollen, it's not natural pollen. So the research is out there. Uh, Emily Nordyke uh, wrote a paper that showed that none of that research that's out there is conclusive or um, I forget what else she said, but, uh, but she did say that some of them showed negative um, consequences to feeding pollen supplements. So just be very mindful of that. Sanitation is also another thing. You want to make sure that if you've got disease colonies, you're not spreading, sharing the resources to other healthy colonies for fear of contaminating them. If you've got contaminate, con 
uh, contagious diseases in your colony, then make sure you sanitize your tool and even your smoker and even your gloves and, and everything. You just don't want to transfer that to another colony. And if you've got colonies that are diseased, you don't want to transfer them to other yards either. So that's something to, to keep in mind that sanitation is part of the cultural controls. You just don't want to spread diseases. So how do you get those uh, awesome local survivor stock uh, you know, bees, well, you can, you can get that through swarm catching, through swarm tra trapping, put up swarm traps. Uh, you could also do cutouts. You could, um, if, you're, if you're equipped and experienced enough to do that, and you can also split from stock that's um, local resilient stock from the previous years that have survived without treatment. So all of that is going to allow you to get local stock, uh, catching swarms that are hanging from branches. You don't always know for sure they're going to be um, survivor stock because you don't know if they escaped from treated, you know, uh, apiaries, if they're wild or feral, wild being they've escaped from an apiary and then uh, made it through the, their first winter. Feral, they've always lived out there on their own. Uh, but by catching those, first of all, they're not going to cost you much of anything. And also, um, you might very well be getting some of that awesome stocks that, that um, you're looking for, that local survivor stock. So I always say, get that local stock uh, through swarm catching or trapping or cutouts, and then uh, let them show you what they can do for you. Don't requeen them especially with uh, inferior um, breeder queens or, or grafted queens or queens, because you don't know, they could very well be uh, the best bees you've ever had. So let them kind of develop, establish in their first or second year, and then kind of assess. If you like them, keep them. If you don't like them, then requeen them at that point. Don't automatically requeen them. You don't know what you're losing and you don't know what you're destroying. Uh, genetic-wise, you could have some fantastic bees that way. If you cannot do this or if you're impatient and don't want to rely on just swarm catching or, or cutouts, you can also look for st survivor stock providers. There's an amazing resource for North in the Americas uh, at b-mindful.com slash treatment-free-resources. Um, you can look up, there's a map of America and Canada and, and uh, South America, but providers mostly in North Americas uh, will be pictured with little bees on the map. And if you click on those bees, you will see um, who's next to you or closest to you that's selling bees or potentially queens or packages or nukes or providing education for survivor stock. And um, the example on the slide is that of Kirk Webster. I clicked on that little B and it's got his contact information. If you want it, he's got uh, treatment-free nukes and queens. So if you do that and look what's close to you, you might find some resources, but that's a purchase kind of an option. I promised we were gonna talk about foundationless and natural wax. Um, I think that um, we are gonna talk about um, how that wax is very important to the bees. First of all, whether you know it or not, it's a, it's a, it contains a lot of different chemical components and it, it basically holds the history and the memory of the colony via chemical signals that the bees have put into it because it's, it absorbs smells 
and it absorbs, uh, um, it's oil-based, so it absorbs a lot of the signals, the chemical signals that the bees are emitting. And so it's important for the bees. It's just kind of um, helps them communicate with each other. It's lipophilic. What does lipophilic mean? It means that it uh, absorbs, it, it mixes with oily substances. It, and that such, it is able to remove toxins from the colony like a sponge um, and, and out of the honey as well. Um, so the, the downside of that is that because it is so uh, spongy, absorbing toxins, it will do so also with the, the treatments that you put in the colony. Uh, a friend of ours was uh, sold bees that she was told were treatment free from a local Austin provider uh, who actually was buying her bees from a supplier that treats with Apivar in oxalic acid, but also Apivar. So she ended up she was keeping her bees treatment free. They were doing fine. And she put her, she put the bees in her, on her property in the country. And then they died of acute poisoning. And so she was wondering why that would be the case. And so she sent um, samples to the lab to analyze what had happened. And it turns out that the neighbors had, um, the neighbors, the country, the fields around might have used, you know, um, fungicides or other agricultural um, components, but they were not toxic per se to the bees. What happened though, is that the wax in the nooks the that she purchased had been exposed to apivar and retained those components into the wax and combined with the other uh, fungicides or pesticides that were in the environment, created a toxic soup and, and, and compounded the toxicity of those uh, components and killed her colonies. So had she had nukes that were not treated with apivar, she probably would have been fine. But in this case, she lost her bees because they were treated and the lab mentioned you treated with apivar. They were able to tell it was in the wax that she had. So that's something to keep in mind. That's very important. The other aspect of natural wax and, and its importance is that it's, um, um, it's the information highway that the bees use to communicate. They dance, they vibrate on the wax. And so when we have natural wax that's foundationless, that vibration is vibrant <laughs> and and it, they're best able to communicate and exchange where the food is and, and different messages um, when you're using foundation you've got uh dampening of that those vibrations and i argue that actually probably in my opinion okay i will say in my opinion that dampens the communication through the entire colony makes it making it less efficient uh, for them to be able to tell each other where the food is, where the forage is, and, and um, just kind of uh, really um, stacks the deck against them a little bit more. Remember, we are trying to give them the best chances. Every time we stack the deck against them, we're taking a little bit away uh, of, of what we can do to help them. So it might be convenient for the beekeeper, but I argue it's not as good for the bees. The other reason it's not as good for the bees is because um, it doesn't let the bees 
build the cell sizes that they need to be healthy, to have the most efficient functioning in the colony. And in the colony, you have all kinds of cells. You have queen cells, you have drone cells, you have worker cells. The nectar cells are larger. They can be um, at the top of the comb. Usually they're a little bit larger and, and they, um, the foundation usually will also impose a specific size of cells that's always the same. And it also is usually larger, 5.4 millimeters is a standard size of the foundation. And the bees typically like smaller uh, cells for their workers, meaning that they are uh, usually smaller bees and usually will develop faster, uh, especially in warm climate, but they will develop faster in smaller cells because there's less space. And potentially that might leave less time for the varomites to um, cast off uh, mated and viable uh, daughter mites when they are emerging with the bees, right? Because there's less time for them to reproduce. So that's something to keep in mind. The drone cells also can serve as a um, um, healthy layer of insulation. And if we are preventing the bees from laying drone cells using foundation, we might actually be taking away from the health of the colony. So let's keep all that in mind and uh, of the potential unintended consequences of using foundation. If you do use foundation, that's, that's okay. Maybe uh, try to leave that for honey supers um, so that you can use that in the extractor and potentially consider leaving the brood's nest as natural wax so that the bees can build the cell sizes that they need and be healthier. That's a compromise that some are uh, hopefully willing to, to reach and, and help the bees with. Um, by the way, when you are going foundationless, don't go, uh, you can go at it right away if you're experienced and you know what to do to help them build straight so that your hives are uh, inspectable. But if you don't know how to do that or if, to get started, if you have drone comb on foundation to use as guides to sandwich those new frames into, uh, you can do that. And then they will build those combs straight the way you want to. And you can start um, um, culling out the old comb and rolling it out of the colony as you harvest your honey. So that's one way to do it. And the other aspect of cultural control would be to consider the intensity in your area. When you've got hundreds and thousands of colonies in one spot, they obviously are competing for resources. There's more spread of diseases and uh, it becomes a, a little bit trickier to keep bees. So that's something to keep in mind. Don't put too many colonies in one area if you can avoid it. Um, and also be mindful of the carrying capacity of your area, meaning how much food is available to sustain healthy colonies. And very often, if you let the if you don't feed the bees and you let them kind of ebb and flow, uh, they will end up stabilizing, stabilizing to the carrying capacity of your area. Not everybody can have 20, 30 colonies in one yard. It's just the bottom line. So maybe part of the issues that you're encountering might be linked to how much intensity um, there is in your area and how, uh, how much carrying capacity there is as well. So there was a lot. We talked about um, the basics of integrated pest management. We talked about the education and knowledge uh, level of the uh, integrated pest management pyramid. We talked also about the cultural control 
uh, in interventions of the pyramid uh, in, in all that entails. Really, those are really the main two ones that we focus the most on. But there's other things that we are going to talk about next month, which are going to be the mechanical, uh, physical intervention levels, as well as the biological uh, level of the pyramid, and finally the chemical intervention pyramid. But we're going to keep that for next month because I've been talking for uh, quite some time, and I'm sure you're tired of listening to me right now. And uh, with that, I want to make sure that you know that you can come and ask all the questions that you want, and we will address them either through the Natural Beekeeping Corner or one of the weekly um, uh, episodes with JJ, with John Swan, on the, the Hive Dive, the regular episodes. And then we'll get you uh, your answers. But uh, in the meantime, I just want to thank you for listening to me today. And um, I appreciate your, um, your time. And if you have any specific theme that you want to address, just let me know. And we will dive into that a little bit more. In the meantime, thank you so much. Um, you guys have a good day. And I will talk to you next month on the Natural Beekeeping Corner with Natalie B. Have a good one and be mindful. Thanks. You've been listening to The Hive Jive. We appreciate you joining us on our beekeeping adventures. And you can find out more information about today's episode online at thehivejive.com. And as always, thanks for listening.